Let's open in prayer. Father God, please work by the power of your Holy Spirit in each of our hearts to turn our eyes to Jesus Christ, your Son, in whose name we pray. Behold my servant. God's call rings out in our passage from Isaiah this week. In three previous songs, God has celebrated this central figure from the book of Isaiah, the servant of the Lord. Now we come to the final and climactic song of the servant. Charles Spurgeon characterized these magnificent 15 verses as a Bible in miniature, the gospel in its essence. Indeed, this song sets out before us the pivotal moment in the history of the world. But before we reach this pinnacle, we travel through the astonishing promises from God to his people in the first part of our passage. On our way to a view of the turning point of history, we find ourselves at the beginning of history in the Garden of Eden. In chapter 51, verse 3, God promises to restore the desert wilderness of his people to life as it was in the Garden of Eden. Can you imagine what it would be like to return to paradise? The first humans, Adam and Eve, flourished, surrounded by abundant life, with a river watering the garden and the tree of life nourishing them. They lived in absolute harmony with the rest of creation. They enjoyed the delight of fellowship with God and one another. They felt no shame. There was no reason for shame. There was only peace and wholeness. Shalom. What happened? Tragically, Adam and Eve forfeited this life of boundless joy when they succumbed to Satan's temptation to join in his rebellion against God, to sin against the God who created them. They abandoned their trust in their God rejecting his goodness and provision. In his just anger against the rebellion, he cursed the creation and banished Adam and Eve from the garden. Now they experience shame. Their sin plunged humanity into a future of war and family distress and disease and natural disasters a whole array of misery. This is our desert wilderness. And the blight of mankind is that each one of us has inherited a sin nature from Adam and Eve, our first parents. We are part of the rebellion. However, a beam of hope shines into this dismal picture. In Genesis 3.15, God proclaims that a descendant of Adam and Eve would defeat Satan and his forces of evil, would crush his head. Only this victory could open the way for us back into the garden. 
this hope of restoration flows through chapters 51 and 52 of Isaiah. Here God promises a salvation that will never end. We so desperately need that salvation to be delivered from God's wrath against our sin. And so our merciful God declares, the bowl of my wrath you shall drink no more. According to chapter 52, verse 10, God as a warrior bears his arm to go into battle to win this salvation for his people. God describes the hope of Eden in terms of righteousness, which is his power to make all things right the way he created them to be. Chapters 51 and 52 provide glimpses into what this salvation and righteousness will look like. God promises comfort to his people. Oppression and hunger will vanish. We live, we will live under God's constant protection. He will go before us and be our rear guard. This restoration will be the oasis from our life in this desert wilderness. How wonderful will this life be? It will be so wonderful that sorrow will flee away, replaced with gladness. God's people will sing with everlasting joy, unending, uninterrupted joy. What a glorious song that will be. Do we dare hope for this? Are we able to trust the herald in chapter 52 who announces good news of peace and happiness and salvation? Every human heart yearns for wholeness like this, and we have devised all kinds of strategies to try to regain it. According to my parents, human ingenuity and intelligence would solve all the world's problems. Advancements in science and technology, medicine, education, philosophy represented hope for my parents. On the other hand, the, li- the music that I was listening to back in the 60s offered a completely different perspective. It claimed that we would save the world by sticking flowers in our hair and joining hands and loving one another in this kind of vague, commitment-free fashion. One song by Joni Mitchell even mentioned the Garden of Eden. She wrote, I'm going to try and get my soul free. We are stardust. We are golden. And we've got to get ourselves back to the garden. But a half century later, our world still labors in chaos and heartache. Neither the salvation model of my parents nor that of the music of my youth produced shalom. Neither have any of the ideologies of any age across history. The truth is, we cannot get ourselves back to the garden. Instead, our hope rests in the God pictured in Isaiah 51 and 52. The creator God who stretches out the heavens and who lays the foundations of the earth. The God of Abraham and Sarah who brings life out of barrenness. 
the God of the Exodus from Egypt, of the plagues and the parting of the Red Sea, he and he alone has the power to restore us to Eden. We look to this God to reverse the devastating consequences of our rebellion and to bring about that victory promised in Genesis 3.15. In expectation of that victory, we enter into Isaiah 52.13 through 53.12, the brilliant fourth song of the servant. Here, God begins. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. Now this sounds like victory. Could this be the one who will crush Satan's head? But the description of the servant continues with words that are shocking. There was nothing about him, no beauty or majesty that would draw us to him. In fact, people hid their faces from him. They couldn't even bear to look. He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, oppressed and afflicted. To the human eye, it appears that he must have been a flagrant sinner, and that God has punished him for this sin. But this servant had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. He couldn't have been punished for his sin because he was without sin. And yet, according to Isaiah, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. Why? Why has the Lord purposed this miserable condition for his sinless servant? Can we even fathom Isaiah's explanation? The servant has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. We have gone astray like sheep, wandering away from their creator. The servant is like a lamb led to the slaughter. Year after year, the Jewish priests sacrificed lambs to satisfy God's anger against sin. The lambs died instead of the people as an offering for their guilt. Isaiah says that the servant makes an offering for guilt. Also, he makes many to be accounted righteous because this sinless man took the punishment that we deserve God sees us as being righteous, as if that first sin in the garden never happened. The servant was despised and rejected so that miraculously we would be acceptable to God. At the end of the song, God announces that because the servant has poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, he will receive the spoils of war. This horrific death looks like a total defeat. Instead, it's a stunning victory. How can this be? Who is this servant? The people of Isaiah's day did not know who he would be. But we know. Because the writers of the New Testament refer to this song over and over again. 
they boldly proclaim that this servant is Jesus Christ and that this song puts on spectacular display his death on the cross. Isaiah asks, who has believed what he's heard from us and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He has been revealed to us, those who look back at the cross and what Jesus has done to secure our salvation. The New Testament makes crystal clear that Jesus is the arm of the Lord, the righteous warrior who will make all things right for his people. 1 Peter 2 quotes from Isaiah 53 to show that Jesus is the sinless lamb who went to the cross willingly, without protest, to bring us reconciliation with God. In, first, in uh, John 1, when John the Baptist sees Jesus approaching, he cries out, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John the Baptist knew that this one is the one described by Isaiah, the offering for our guilt. But um, ah, in the words of Hebrews 10, Christ offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins. All those lambs that had been sacrificed over all those years pointed forward to Jesus' one sacrifice that finally and decisively paid for our sins. According to Colossians 2, God forgave all our transgressions. He nailed them to the cross, and in this way, he put Satan's powers of evil to shame and triumphed over them. This is the victory promised in Genesis 3.15. This is the solution to our rebellion against God. Isaiah declares the chastisement that brought us peace was on the servant. God is at peace with us, and that is good news. But life now does not match what it was in the Garden of Eden. We still feel the weight of the curse, the calamities of life, and we go astray. We sin because, as Romans 7 illustrates, we still have that sin nature. One of the main charges that God brings against his people in the book of Isaiah is their sin of fear of man. He strongly rebukes them in chapter 51. Who are you that you are afraid of man who dies and have forgotten the Lord your maker? The nation of of Judah was supposed to have served as witnesses to the glory of God to the rest of the world. Out of fear of man, they miserably failed in that mission. So do I. I'm afraid of people. My mother and my school teachers fretted over me because I was so painfully shy in school. And then the man who was my husband deceived and betrayed and abandoned me. With that, my fear shifted into overdrive. Since then, I have fought to make sure that no one ever wounds me again. And my weapons have not been Christ-like. I've promoted myself so I appear more virtuous and competent than I really am. 
in hope that people will love me. Because theoretically, if you love me, you won't hurt me. But regardless of the circumstances, this is sin that glorifies me rather than God. God says that when I do this, I'm forgetting him, the one who created me. Yet Hebrews 12 urges us to lay aside the sin that clings so closely to us. We do this, says Hebrews, by looking to Jesus, who endured the shame of dying like the vilest of criminals on a cross. He suffered to remove our shame before God. From 2 Corinthians 4, we learn that it is in this very good news about Christ that we see God's glory. Here the Apostle Paul explains that God has given us the light of the knowledge of God's glory in the face of Jesus Christ. And 2 Corinthians 3 assures us that as we behold this glory, we are transformed into his image from one degree of glory to another. Wonder of wonders, we become more like him. Of course, this process is not completed in this lifetime because we do still have that sin nature. But as we focus on the sacrificial love of Christ lavished on us at the cross, we are enabled more and more over time to lay aside our sin. This transformation is a testimony of God's glory to the world. Rejection hurts. But armed with the knowledge that my creator accepts me, I can be freed from the battle for human approval. In this way, shalom has broken into my life even now. Sin shattered my marriage and my heart. But God has begun to roll back the curse in my life to allow me to taste something the restoration to Eden. This is God's promise to me as I fix my eyes on Jesus. In both Isaiah and the New Testament, we behold him who, according to Hebrews 2, is now crowned with glory and honor precisely because he suffered death on behalf of his people. We celebrate these words from Ephesians 1. God raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that has been named, not only in this age, but in the age to come. The suffering servant shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted for all eternity. And in eternity, we will worship him in the holy city, the new Jerusalem. In the very last chapter of the Bible, Revelation 22, we see that this eternal city is the restoration to Eden, promised in Isaiah 51. We are no longer cut off from it, because as Isaiah says, the servant was cut off out of the land of the living. The river and the tree of life are in the city. 
No longer will there be anything accursed. The curse that God pronounced against his creation will be gone. Revelation 22 declares that in the eternal future, we will see the face of the Lord. And when we do, certainly, we will recount for all eternity what the servant has done to deliver us from our desert to peace and happiness and salvation. Shalom. This will be our song of everlasting joy. This is our song now. Sisters in Christ, listen, hear God's call to his people. Behold my servant. Let us pray. Father God, we worship you and thank you for the gift of your servant, the Lamb of God who changed the course of history at the cross and now rules for eternity. It is in his precious name that we pray. Amen.